You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. It's the 24th of April, it's a Sunday, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, which can only mean one thing. Yes, it's time for your weekly dose of radiotherapy. Dr Nick here, uh, attempting to fill the void created by the absence, uh, temporary, I'm glad to say, of the terrifyingly talented Dr Doolittle, who's off having a well-earned break. And today's show features a super smart lineup of experts. We have Dr Zeus, who is a radiotherapy regular, a psychiatry registrar at one of Melbourne's leading hospitals. He has a particular interest in how psychedelic drugs, things like MDMA and things like psilocybin, that magical ingredient in magic mushrooms, how these drugs can assist in psychotherapy. So welcome, Dr. Zeus. Good morning. Nice to be back. It's been a while. Lovely to have you. And we have another radiotherapy regular in EpiPen, that indefatigable doyen of epidemiology, qualified nurse, knower of all matters to do with things medical. Welcome back, EpiPen. Morning. <laughs> beautiful up. morning it is too. Isn't it fantastic? Cycling yeah. in this morning in the sunshine is yeah. beautiful. And to freshen things up a little, a world first for radiotherapy. As our final guest, we have a medical student who's flown in especially from New South Wales to give us an insight into the journey she and so many other aspirants have embarked upon to get to that goal of medicine. Welcome, misdiagnosis. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you here on Radiotherapy. Um, But we'll start with the regular catch-up segment where we go back to all things medical and what's been happening in the world of medicine. Uh, Epi, tell us what you've got for us. Well, I was just having a quick look about in the news about something healthy and something that might interest the show this morning. And on after watching Michelle Bridges on 7.30 report about a person who's made a lot of money out of people that are a bit overweight, I was looking and reading um, about a new initiative in the UK that's coming out next year about a tax on sugary drinks. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So to go back a bit, so just to talk about why they might be wanting to do something like this is because there's an epidemic. Well, no, it's not a true epidemic, I don't think. I think what's happened, and I looked at the figures for obesity, and over a 10-year period in Australia, the uh, there's a 10% increase in weight of people in our society and the problem with being overweight I'm sure everybody knows ad finitum about the um, why we shouldn't be overweight is because of cardiovascular diseases type 2 diabetes musculoskeletal conditions and some cancers and some of those are pancreatic cancers and esophageal cancers so how do we measure weight well it's under the bench in the bathroom isn't it that little square box that we call scales we try and turn down the knob so that it doesn't register the high weight that we some some of us are but then there's the bmi which is a calculation to estimate your total body or body fat amount of body fat which is uh it's a a calculation of body weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared oh come on epi how how much do our listening audience really need to know bmi don't they just have to take their clothes off and have a good long hard look in the mirror well that's my third one the mirror yeah. I'm, so, always a bit, I'm always a bit sceptical about this BMI. It's yeah, got to be it between 19 and 25 and over 25 and so on. It's a, I really just say to people, take your clothes off, look in the mirror and be honest. 
<laughs> some True. are harsher than most. <laughs> so, so just for some figures, you know, as we like to quote some things where these have been plucked from. So, the Australian Bureau of Statistics in 2011 and 2012 said two in three Australians are overweight, so that's 63% overweight or obese, and one in four children are now overweight, so that's 25% of children, which is alarming. And I'm, I'm going to challenge you a little here, Effie, because I was listening to an expert on bariatric medicine, a woman who's worked in this field for 20 years, talking not that long ago, and she was saying, we've lost this battle. We've been trying to prevent obesity and overweight for decades now, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. She was essentially throwing her hands in the air and saying, we need to stop trying. We're wasting money trying to prevent it. Time to get on and deal with the consequences. Give me your response to that one. Yes, that's a good one because I was reading about how do you treat obesity and a lot of it's education and how successful has that been. Um, but one of the other things is surgery and there's some people are begging for it. They've tried everything. But the other thing to go back a step is that when you talk about diets, it's not a diet anymore because a diet's got a defined beginning and end. So it's a life a style change which is very difficult for people but I, I don't know about bariatric surgery I'm sure for the very very overweight but it's a big deal it's a so, big so take us to this whole concept then because you said quite correctly in my view that it's not just about fancy diets but this sugar tax question that's come up because this seems to me a, a, a potentially very important move and not of course the whole solution but maybe a part of what's the story there okay so in the uk they're thinking about doing it but it's based on an experience and some research done in mexico of all places so they had um they nobody, nobody gets fat in mexico they're always <laughs> shot before they get a chance <laughs> <don't they? laughs> not true well they're still kids and they're still alive apparently mexico is one of the highest rates of childhood obesity in the world i think i've heard the figure second highest in the world quoted but which surprised me considerably See, it's good to have real experts on this show isn't it thank you yeah, that's right. That's correct. Dr. Zeus. Um, so they had, um, they were sort of estimating that children were overweight and that with this um, tax that was put on, um, it's an SBS tax, which stands for sugar um, added uh, beverages, um, was that that they had some very good evidence that um, children did lose some weight after it was um, introduced. And it's, it's sort of like I looked at where the, what sort of initiatives we've used with other areas of health that have, have had had some impact. So taxing cigarettes, definitely. But that's definitely reduced in cigarette smoking. But that's a cause and effect. We look at smoking, it's one thing, and then you lose, you, you know, you decrease smoking and hopefully decrease the incidence of lung cancer. But... Being overweight is so multifactorial. And one, I like this little summary that they had that um, about why we are. It's because food is plentiful, work is automatic, leisure and hobby, hobbies are now effortless. So it's, it's a tough one, I reckon. I suppose the point about a sugar tax is that I think most people would agree there's nothing particularly good about sugar. Uh, it's terrific for the people who sell it and the people who market it. But for the people who consume it, I'm not sure there's any great need or health benefit in sugar. And if we said, well, sugary drinks are going to become more expensive, regardless of whether that uh, makes a difference to the rates of obesity, that's not a bad thing. Is yes. It? yes. But sugar is, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, still, it's a drug. 
because it has an addictive component to it, and it's why people keep coming back. Um, but perhaps there's this the politically correct movement that is sweeping across the world. It's one of the reasons that make it really hard to enforce something like this, because surely someone's going to come out there and say, this is a human rights violation if you take away my right to sugar, or if you start infringing upon my right to sugar. I can just imagine that argument waiting in the wings, ready to burst out. Do you think... I'm not sure that anyone was <laughs> going to put a law banning sugar anywhere yes. and you're going to have a black yeah. market with people shooting it up quietly in an alleyway. I think all we were <laughs> talking about here was an attacks on sugar. Attacks, and yeah. as Epi has quite correctly pointed out, all the research shows that when you increase the cost of something, make availability more difficult, it reduces the usage. And this is yeah. true in alcohol, it's true in cigarettes, and it would certainly be true of sugar should it come in. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense to me that uh, we should be doing that. And, and not only obesity, there's another little area of health, tooth decay. And dental, mm. dental health is another important one to th- remember. Imagine the dentist would be very pleased. Yes. With this, all well or displeased. Yes. If their business goes down. Yeah. Has anyone looked at plain packaging for soft drinks? Oh, that's nice. So that's pictures of rotten teeth rotten on the teeth. outside. <laughs> <laughs> Learn from the tobacco industry. Yes. I've noticed in the supermarkets now that um, some of the brands have chosen to use glass bottles, which seem much more appealing when they're on the shelf than the plastic ones. And they're trying to almost be sort of boutique uh, soft drinks. And I wonder if it was all in, you know, sort of white cartons or something like that, if people would be running to pick it up for their next party. Mm. Yeah. Good, good point. And when it comes to dietary advice, I mean, one of the things that uh, I absolutely love is that food writer Michael Pollan, the American guy, uh, who distilled it all down to seven words, um, which was eat food, not too much, mainly plants. And then he has to clarify what he mean by food, and by food he means the food that your grandparents would recognise, the, <laughs> the sort of stuff that's in the fresh part of the food, uh, not things in boxes and tins. Uh, and he makes a lovely point, which I think is terrific, that um, all the packets on it which have health claims on the outside, low in fat, low in sugar, reduces cholesterol. He said, if you go to the fruit and vegetable aisle, there's no sticker saying good for your cholesterol on an apple. <laughs> it's just fresh food. It doesn't need a health claim. Mm. Um, so while we talk on and on and on about sugar and additives and so on, I think going back to that very basic principle uh, wouldn't do anyone any harm. So, and just going back to obesity, what and where I started with Michelle Bridges, what, what do you, what's your take on um, shaming and embarrassing people in their, you know, Australia's biggest losers, where obese people get up and get on the scales and. Then my, my question more than that would be why on earth was 7.30 report devoting an entire half hour or hour or whatever it is to Michelle Bridges? <laughs> I think because she's an Australian and it's a fascinating way of one woman who's cashed in on obesity and made millions on it. And my view would be that there's no research to suggest that naming and shaming is an effective health intervention, but it probably makes very good television. And I think that's an effective media intervention. Exactly. I think that's what's driving it more than anything else. Yes. So, yes. so I don't think they're I don't think they're driven by a desire to see the, the population losing weight, but the but the audience numbers going up. Yes, exactly. Yes. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. And with us this morning, we have the wonderfully named Misdiagnosis, who rocketed to fame earlier this year because she uh, popped a letter in the age about her experience of trying to get into medical school, uh, which she finally did. And uh, she invited her in, to, in here today to tell us a little bit about the scenic route to medicine. Good morning, Miss D. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit, Judy. You've had a letter in the age talking about your scenic route into medicine, which is a lovely concept. What's, what were you talking about? 
Well, I guess the the main thing that I wanted to talk about is that um, at the time there was uh, a lot of pressure for VCE kids. It was just about the time that results came out. And I felt like... um, as a VCE student, I'd sort of always been driven to do medicine, and when I didn't get that score, I was I was pretty upset, and I wanted to kind of uh, just let people know that there are always other ways to get into whatever you want to do, and I wanted to come back and talk about it today because now that I've started, it's interesting just to see the sort of breadth of different people you've got in a postgraduate medical degree and the number of experiences people have, as well as the other jobs and things they've done before they've started. So let's go back to that time, because you're absolutely right, it's awful, isn't it? You read in the paper, it's success story after success story, 99.95, and these grinning people who've got exactly what they want. And it sort of masks that great horde of people who didn't quite get there or whose results were a little bit disappointing from their point of view. Um, And you obviously went through that experience to some extent yourself. Tell us about that. Well, so when I, I mean, as I said, I, I was very keen to do medicine and I didn't get, uh, I didn't get a 99.95. So oh. I, yes, I know. <laughs> I, and actually the interesting thing is very few people do, but you hear about them. So it sort of, it was masked, I think, by that, especially it does in the paper. sometimes feel like the whole world's got 99.95, except for me. Yeah, no, mm. it does. Um, so I went on to do a science degree at the University of Melbourne because I also didn't get into my second preference, which was um, a Bachelor of Biomedical Science. But the reason behind wanting to do a Bachelor of Biomedical Science was that it had the word medical in the title, and I think that was probably <laughs> about it. Um, there was actually nothing in the degree that I wanted to do. Um, it just sounded nicer than science, and science was sort of the thing that other people did. But when it came down to it, the amount of uh, choice I had in the science degree, the amount of freedom I had to choose my subjects, I went overseas twice with it. I did a concurrent diploma in Italian. Um, It just sort of was definitely a much more interesting path, I think, than biomedicine would have been. Wandering around overseas (laughs) doing a diploma in Italian doesn't sound like a dedicated life choice of heading into medicine. (laughs) Well, I think it was a process of exploring, to be honest. So, I mean, I was a student at school where I was interested in a lot of different things. I, I, I did sort of chemistry and and maths Um, but I also did literature and Italian and and sort of English and that kind of thing and I and I wasn't quite sure once I hadn't got into medicine that maybe I didn't want to do some of those so one of the things that I've struck by in your letter um, because you always read these things um, experts saying oh if you don't get what you want don't be too alarmed that your life isn't governed by your VCE but of course for the person who has just not quite got there uh, it's 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 crestfalling and Mm -hmm. one of the things I think more exact words is I get it it sucks Yes, (laughs) because for those couple of months, your life is governed by that score. And I think to say otherwise is is a bit silly, really, because that score will determine where you go next. And whether you need it as high as you got or you need it higher, it may be a barrier to your, you know, your next sort of three to six months of deciding what you're going to do. And I think that was the thing that spoke to me so much about it was uh, I think a lot of kids don't get that acknowledgement uh, Mm -hmm. that they've missed out on what they were really, really hoping to get. And it sucks. And I think they must get a bit tired of people saying, oh, don't worry, it doesn't govern your life. No, it sucks. I hated it. (laughs) But then that doesn't mean that's the end of everything. And that was the next part, wasn't it? If anything, if I can add my two cents worth, I distinctly remember when I got into medical school, I was about two to three years older than everyone else, than most people, because I'd spent two or three years in the army before getting into med school. And at the time, the, dis- the, dif- the age discrepancy between myself and some of, the, some of the kids from Queensland were 16 getting into medical school. And it doesn't matter what your VCE score is. If you don't know life, 
you're never going to be as good a doctor as you possibly would if you've just experienced more life. Some of the some of the great best things about growing up is understanding more about normal, so you understand more about abnormal as a result. And a lot of the mature age students had that massive advantage, even if they did a degree in arts or a diploma in Italian. It was that process of having lived for that much longer and experienced so much more, which made their capacity to take in things and have that different perspective on it, which I think is a great way to do it. And where did you do your medical training, Dr. Seuss? Um, at Monash University here. But you were in the army for a couple of years beforehand? Just before that, yeah. Where yeah. was that? In Singapore. Ah, okay. Was that the delayed route? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another one. Another one. Yeah. And was that, re- that was required? You it was had prescription, to be- yeah. Yeah, okay. And you, you didn't want to stay? And that's another interesting story because I didn't get into medical school in Singapore as well. So wow, that's that my, my, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very sore and I went to every university forum and lamb blasted them about why I didn't get in and wrote letters to the press because I had the same grades as everyone else who did get in. But there's their quotas and the very various factors in play, which is not mm. air on <laughs> live radio. Um, <laughs> but essentially, I feel you exactly where you're coming from. And I travelled all the way to Australia. I migrated to Australia from Singapore to get into medical school, but there are various other pathways, obviously. Mm. And it's, it's interesting being in a sort of postgraduate medical school now because it, so one of my friends used to be a rocket scientist. So she, she was an um, aerospace engineer and then she decided that actually that wasn't really for her. And so now she started a, a medical degree and she's looking to do neuroscience so she can do rocket science and brain surgery and, so, you know, get the best of all of that. Like that old, that old joke about, oh rocket science well it's not quite neurosurgery is it yeah. <laughs> so she's sort of seeking to to prove them all wrong that she can do it all <laughs> so if i remember correctly you've just started your graduate medical studies in That's new great. south wales so you've just been thrown into the deep end actually seeing patients yet how's it working uh um some of my my cohort have i haven't done my gp rotation yet um we've been mostly it's it's pretty you know, sort of biochemistry and a lot of pathways and things at the moment, and they throw in clinical relevance and that kind of thing. Do you still have to dissect a human body? Uh, we have to look at other people's dissections because they've told us it's far too expensive for them to let us do it and that we'll make a mess of it anyway. And watching other people's um, doing the dissection, how many people have fainted so far? Uh, only, well, I almost did. I don't think anyone else has. And, it's, and, I've, and I found that kind of unusual because I've done uh, anatomy previously. So I've been in labs before. I've been around sort of the formalin smell and that kind of thing. But I was in the lab, oh, it must have been sort of two or three weeks ago. And we were looking at, at some, I think we were looking at a uh, sort of lower limb anatomy. And I remember we were sort of looking at the muscles. Okay, oh, that goes there and this one goes here. And it was, you know, and I turned around and there was just a foot poking out underneath uh, a sort of, you know, white white little cloth over the top of it and i suddenly went oh <laughs> i i used to get so hungry after our dissection sessions which just sounds so wrong no, oh, imagine actually, how i felt it's I actually walk physiological out of it, no, mechanism i think the formalin <laughs> stimulates the Possibly, sort of whatever second it is, it phase of digestion and makes you hungry makes you hungry and um miss miss d did, did you have any work experience where you got a flavor for medicine is that is was that ever part of your schooling or how did you where was where did this passion come from the passion for medicine correct oh well i did when i was 16 i did do work experience um at a hospital and that was certainly quite inspiring because there was so much 
sort of going on and especially as a 16 year old where a lot of my friends had gone to do work experience at sort of law firms and that kind of thing and they sort of spent most of their time getting coffee and sitting down and I got to you know run around between pathology labs and you know sort of get to know some of the doctors there and it just it just seemed so exciting and I think that's sort of what sort of kicked off the interest but then I did spend a good five years at university so sort of wondering if that's actually still what I wanted to do or not. And as someone who's finally got in to do this course um, I'm still fascinated and I don't know if you know the answer to this but in my day you went along to the interview and just said I want to do medicine because I come from a medical family I want to help people tick and you got given a place. Nowadays, my understanding is you say that sort of thing, it's a big cross. No, that, that's not good enough. Um, for those out, potential aspirants out there who are thinking, oh, what on earth am I supposed to say about why I want to do this? Do you know what the answer is? Oh, God, no. I mean, <laughs> I know what I said, <laughs> so I can let people know sort of what my well, approach was. you got in, was. so maybe your approach is good enough. What, yeah, what but, you know, who knows if that was the interview or my stellar portfolio. I had no idea. Um, <laughs> it was so, a diploma in Italian. Oh, it was probably that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, look, I think at the moment the university is in the interview process. They're looking to find out if you would be a good fit with their program. And whilst the courses are, sort of seem to be pretty similar, you know, you all end up with a degree, I think the universities have different focuses. So certainly for me, for me at Notre Dame, um, a big part of their system and their, their sort of um, their ethos is around social justice, um, as well as sort of uh, being responsible and ethical practitioners. So I think what they were looking for in an interview would, was whether we would be a good fit for that. So which is not to say you know, pretend you're interested in those areas if you're not, but speak with with honesty and passion about what you are interested in. And you mentioned that you're at Notre Dame, a Catholic institution, I presume. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Um, and in medicine, it's sometimes a bit of a vexed issue where uh, religion and Catholicism collides with ethics and, and choice. Um, is that something which you found uh, intrudes on the course in any way? Uh, well, not so far. It's sort of, I've been waiting just to see whether you know that will come up later. Um, I think it is you know early days still. We're only ten weeks in, um, but you know we we've had a lot of training in in sort of biomedical ethics already. Um, just looking at sort of you know the foundation, the pillars of biomedical ethics and things like that. And so far, faith hasn't been part of the conversation. Whether that will change as we go on, I don't know. Okay, I, I just thought I'd reassure you in. in in case you thought feeling a bit funny and wobbly in the um, dissection, uh, I was the fainting king at medical school. <laughs> so I, I will admit that on public radio. Uh, I remember one time being dragged out by the heels, regaining consciousness as the staff nurse said, oh, it's always the tall ones that go first. <laughs> so I think that's a pretty endemic amongst medical students. Um taking away from your anatomy <laughs> experience i wanted to ask there's a lot of there are more universities uh even in australia that are moving towards this direct postgraduate program i think melbourne university is one of them so they have like a seven-year program direct entry but it's postgraduate how do you feel about that possibility so everyone ends up being a mature age student sort of i uh, look i think it's i think it's a really good way to go i mean that being said i do have friends that went through the undergraduate medical process um and 
you know, it seems to have worked for them. But I do look at them and feel like that they may have missed out on some of the humility, I think, that life kind of forces you to get sometimes when you fail at things or you're not as good at things or you have to put yourself in situations where, um, you know, you're, you're not considered to be one of the elite. And one of the things I worry about with undergraduate medicine is that from the beginning, from the moment you've gotten into it, it seems like a lot of people are kind of patting you on the back and they see you very differently and you're 18 and you start with that kind of idea of yourself that you are going to be a doctor mm. and i think with that a postgraduate entry system means that you had that it you know and again remains to be seen but creates graduates that have potentially have you know lived a little bit more so and and just to think about if for the other for the listeners it, it's an expensive way to have gone round to get into medicine i mean some people might not be able to have afforded this and so you've been out of school for six years now and mm-hmm. you're still not really got a career or earning money thanks so for that, what, yep. what's <laughs> <laughs> it's a part-time jobs but but that some people might not be able to afford to mm-hmm. have afforded the that that pathway absolutely it, it is, is a privilege to study medicine and it's a privilege really to do any kind of university in this country you know it's not it, i mean we have um, the Commonwealth supported places, but that certainly doesn't mean that everybody's able to do it. Are, are there student loans? Uh, student loans available. It, you can get a Commonwealth supported place, um, and then there is the Centrelink option even for mature age students. So once you're past 25, you can still get uh, sort of it, it stops being youth allowance and starts being called something else. I don't know the details of it. Um, so there is funding available. In a place like Sydney, will that funding be enough? No, you do need to have other support. Um, in terms of loans, I can't really offer any. So, yeah. so, so could a medical that. degree cost, like in the States, 100000 a year or...? Not 100000 a year. So I think for full-fee places, it's uh, between thirty to 35000 a year and you can put that on a loan it does attract a bit of uh, interest with it as well obviously uh, m- my way of doing it was i took last year off and i worked last year so i got myself a sort of nice you know bit of savings that i could draw upon which which sydney seemed to be sort of very keen on on guzzling my savings it's, everything is so much more expensive <laughs> over there um but you know it's it's obviously, yeah, as I said, it, it is a privilege to be able to study it. Mm. And Dr. Seuss, I just want to pull you up. You, you mm-hmm. said it doesn't matter what your VCE score is. Um, it's your life experience. Are you suggesting that uh, anyone with a VCE from 65 up should be able to go and study medicine? Well, potentially. Um, I, I don't think the VCE score is necessarily reflective of even intelligence. Um, and you, you talk to people and you discover very, very early um, where they stand on, a, on an intelligence level. But there are people who are intelligent who are not intellectual. The people who are intelligent and intellectual who have no capacity for introspection whatsoever. And I think it's a combination of those three things that really mould the kind of person that makes a good doctor. Um, and the BC score, score purely, I think it's a very monodimensional, monochromatic assessment of an individual. And yes, we do need a screening process of some form, and that's why we have interviews and things thrown in. Um, but I don't think that should be the be-all and end-all. It's one of the dilemmas, I think, is that we have this 
uniform process for choosing who should become a doctor mm. for a profession which is anything but uniform <laughs> because we need people who are highly intelligent who can look down a microscope all day who don't necessarily have to have the people skills but mm. we need them to be able to work out what's a cancer and what isn't we need people who are very very good with people who don't necessarily need a vc of 99.95 and we right. need everything in between and and I've, no. al- I've always wondered in interviews if they go oh yeah we'll take we'll take that one that's a radiologist oh we'll do that that's a pathologist <laughs> over there and they try and sort of preempt it so and going back to talking about results at school so the pressure on children to do well and get these 99.5 marks um where does the responsibility sit to help and support children going through the vce system i'm speaking because of my daughter when my daughter went through one of the schools that she was um, friends from, from an, another school, the school captain committed suicide just before the VCE exams. Ooh. So he he was so popular, did sport and was a school captain, but was obviously terrified of sitting and getting marks mm-hmm. and not and failing. So failing is part of our education and growing up and. You know, I wonder what they've done for VC students about helping support them through the pressure of getting good marks. Well, I think honest conversations about things like the scenic route, and I don't necessarily mean getting into medicine because obviously that's not something everybody aspires to do, um, would be quite helpful. We often had students, past students, come back and talk to us at school, but the things they talked about were, you know, I got a 99.95 and then I, you know, got into Cambridge University and then I went over there and now my life's fabulous. And as much as that was inspiring and aspirational, it would have been nice maybe to have some people come in and said, oh, yeah, I did okay. Yes. But but also I did okay, and I'm a chef, exactly, or I'm a singer, or I'm I'm a teacher, or you know something like. But where this a lot of the schools do focus, especially the private ones, on this high mark. Yes. Yeah. Well, Miss D, you've got there. You've started the course, and everybody will be asking you this question, so I'll ask you it. Do you know what you want to do once you become a doctor? Oh, I've decided I'm not going to answer that question for the next four years. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Triple R. We mentioned at the intro that we were going to talk things psychedelic drugs, and I can feel the sort of wakeful groanings of all sorts of people between the ages of about 18 and 25. What? Oh, I better listen into this segment. So we gave you time to get your coffee, uh, get your head sorted out, have that cold shower, and so hopefully you're wide awake and tuned in. Um, because Dr. Juice, who's a psychiatry registrar and a researcher, uh, who's looking at um, an area which I think um, psychiatry and psychology has been fascinated in for decades. I remember the Timothy Leary thing about drugs and how good they were for expanding your mind. And I think generations of youth would love to believe that that's the case. And you're now looking at, uh, or involved in the research, looking at how psychedelic drugs, things like MDMA, psilocybin, even LSD, that sort of thing, may be able to help psychotherapy. So welcome and uh, tell us a bit about what this is all about. Thank you for the floor. Um, psychedelics have been around for, well, some would say forever. Um, the psychedelic revolution really started probably um, in the 40s with um, Albert Hoffman discovering LSD. In fact, a couple of years, a couple of days ago, the 19th of April is, was Bicycle Day, which is universally celebrated now as the anniversary of the very first intentional acid trip when Albert Hoffman took his first intentional dose three days after his first accidental dose and rode home on his bicycle and almost never made it home. 
um, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Mm. But it has been used for its therapeutic purposes all through the 40s, the 50s and the 60s. Um, there were countless studies done with LSD, with psilocybin-assisted psychotherapies. Um, in fact, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous was so impressed with some of the studies that some of the initial users were in treating alcoholics and still is to this day. Um, but a lot of the funding and a lot of the approval and the legality of that came out of the microscope in the 60s when it started becoming associated with, I guess, the counterculture um, of the 60s. The free love, hippie culture became associated with psychedelic drugs and I guess the establishment couldn't really have any of that anymore because it, it, it went against the grain of what they believed in. And so all of a sudden there was a complete clampdown on all psychedelics. They all became illegal, they all became Schedule A drugs and together with that was the end of all psychedelic research. It was an absolute shame. And, and when was that? Um, that would have been in the 70s. In the early 70s and so there's been almost nothing rick strassman um and his dmt research in the early 90s so what's dmt right so dmt dimethyltryptamine is one of the most potent psychedelics known to and man and you all know about dimethyltryptamine what, uh, what's, I've never even what's heard a of street D- name give me a street name <laughs> uh the street names as it's probably known here would be something like changa but often it is just called dmt oh yeah changa no, that changa, one, that one yeah, yeah down at the corner store <laughs> i've been um, working in general practice in st kildering dodge areas for a long time. I've never even heard of DMT I have, in China. I have. Yeah, oh well, God, that, that would be a, the difference with a lot of psychedelic drugs. You mm. won't necessarily, necessarily hear about it in your common GP practice, addiction, medicine kind of facility because psychedelics don't often feature into that realm of addiction, um, which is something that is well, controversial as a statement, but also true and not often known. So, I'm sorry, I interrupted you with DMT and... Yes, uh, yes, Strassman and his, and his DMT research. So, he was researching uh, this sub which has been, which is the active ingredient used in in ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is one of the shamanistic uh, rituals. The ayahuasca ceremonies, um, where it's usually in Central America, deep in the Amazon, uh, where they drink this this brew made out of leaves and vines, um, and it produces a twelve hour intense psychedelic trip. And it's a shamanistic ritual that the Mayans, the Incas, they've been doing for 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 centuries. So this, the DMT that they get in Central South America, the extract, the active is ingredient is from, DMT. So it comes from a plant. It comes from a plant bark. Uh, it's usually a combination of tea of a plant bark and leaves which contain Maui's monoamine, monoamine oxidase inhibitors within them which get released, which then release the substance, this kind of serotonergic um, substance within the body. So before people rush out and start chewing on the plane trees out in the street, may it's not, um, quite not going to work around here. Just a word of warning. Yeah. Um, if we drive out today and see people licking trees, at least we know we've got an active listening base. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not, not a very intelligent one, but listening Perhaps. Base. perhaps. Um, so research stalled for many for, for decades and then probably in the last 10 to 15 years is when research has really kicked off again and there are trials all around the world now predominantly in the uk um, in switzerland some parts of canada and in america um, in parts of america the university of new york um, psilocybin assisted psychotherapy so it's magic mushrooms assisted psychotherapy for uh, end of life terminal anxiety is when into, well into phase three trials and being offered to patients with alarmingly good results um, and so in australia though that landscape is currently looking quite bleak 
Um, I went to an event two weeks ago organized by PRISM, Psychedelic Research and Science and Medicine, um, who are attempting to get the first phase one even trials underway um, in Australia for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and for again, just PTSD. For, just for those that don't know, MDMA, PTSD, translate for us. Um, MDMA, um, I guess, and this is where it's going to get controversial, is the active ingredient that is in molly or ecstasy tablets. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between them, if I would explain, is if you think of MDMA as rum and ecstasy would be a mojito. So the ecstasy tablets that we all commonly know of in recreational use are mixed with a whole heap of other substances to make up this cocktail drug, whereas the active pure ingredient, MDMA, of which you can hardly ever find in any sort of street MDMA, um, is initially came about for use in couples therapy, and anyone who's ever taken MDMA will be attest, able to attest to exactly why that would be so. It's, it's known as an empathogen. It produces feel, feelings of, well, I guess, empathy and, an and love. An empathogen. An empathogen, Isn't yes. Isn't that lovely? You take the word pathogen, which we know is nasty and damaging, and you you stick it. an EM in front of it, and suddenly <laughs> and it's a good thing. It. it is a good Thing I'm going to add the M to all sorts of things from now and see, <laughs> see what we can change. It, it has emboldened me. <laughs> um, and therefore, it has the use of it for PTSD, for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, has been has been explored and has been successfully used in phase three trials around the world. Um, and so, in Australia, there's now a push. Um, the psychedelic revolution has finally reached our shores um, to try and get this underway. But we've come under tremendous pressure um, and uh, very little success in getting these studies, even through ethics approval, primarily because, I guess, of the emotional um, uh, the emotional element, the emotional argument and the stigma that has been associated with this. Now, the, the obvious question is that you take a drug, you feel better, mm-hmm. uh, and no wonder you then say, yes, I love my partner more because mm-hmm. I've taken this drug. Mm. But where comes the lasting effect because it's a, it's it, it would be in, in perhaps an analogy you take a valium you feel calmer and so valium is brilliant for anxiety we now, now know 30 40 years later um, that it causes much more trouble than it ever does good mm. and uh, is a complete nightmare mm. and mostly in the treatment of anxiety so how come this is a, a potentially good long-term treatment the idea behind um, any sort of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is that it's not it's not a long-term intervention it's not a lifetime medication that you take the idea, and there's two types of therapy, there's psychedelic therapy and psycholytic therapy. Um, so the idea with psycholytic therapy is small doses of the drug. If you're talking MD, MDMA, something like 30 milligrams. If you're talking um, um, LSD, you're talking 30 micrograms or 75 micrograms, small doses of it, um, and to be using it throughout throughout therapy. So having a session of psychotherapy with your psychotherapist while you're on a small dose of the medication and multiple sessions or so. Psychedelic therapy is a lot more interesting in that it's one big dose and someone has the full full trip, as you would call it, a full psychedelic trip. And it's the kind of existential awakening, the, the transcendental experience of the trip, and then working through the enlightenment that comes from that trip in terms of changing perceptions. Um, the Albert Ho- sorry, Elder Suxley wrote a book called Doors of Perception. It's one of the seminal um, tomes of, of, of psychedelics. Um, and the, the very title, Doors of Perception, actually comes from a poem by William Blake in 1798 where he writes um, for... Um, I'm forgetting the line now. Uh, for when the doors of perception are flung open, man will see the world for what it truly is, infinite. For we see the world through the narrow... For he sees the world through the narrow chinks of his cavern. 
And I think that's quite illuminating in terms that's of beautiful. how... It is, it is a beautiful line, and how Huxley borrowed that line, uh, the doors of perception, the idea being that psychedelics open these doors of perception, that we all have particular perceptual filters that enable us to see the world or hear the world the way we do. Um, and the idea is that psychedelics open those doors, allow us to be more perceptible to, to worldly stimuli, to a perceptual stimuli and in so doing essentially change the way you see the world and that that would make the greatest difference going forward. So if you did take one of these drugs and had your know, full-blown trip, what if it was an, an, an extremely bad reaction? And it can be an extremely bad reaction. Hoffman, um, who, again, who invented acid, LSD, he spoke of set and setting as being the two things that determine whether you have a good trip or a bad trip. Um, set being your mindset that you're in and your setting being your actual physical setting, the people you're with, the environment, are you hot, are you cold? And if you're in a poor set or a poor setting, you're likely to have a bad trip. If you're in a positive set and setting, you're more likely to have a good trip. So you try and minimise the circumstances that are going to lead to it. But even then, having a bad trip, and, and the, the great psychonauts of the 60s and 70s will talk about how having a bad trip is not actually necessarily a bad experience, but how you work through the bad trip. So if you think of snakes and ladders, a bad trip is like getting down the snake, but the idea of working through it with a therapist as opposed to going off in the forest and doing it on your own is that the therapist helps you find that ladder and come back up. And that can be a phenomenal learning experience to be able to navigate your way out through your own subconscious and return out to the fore. So if your trip lasted eight hours, it's a very long psychotherapy Session. They are. They are very long psychotherapy sessions, and that's why they're very resource-intensive, and the therapists need to be very trained for it. Um, but the results that come out from the end of it, it's, it's a different way for them, for, for the patients to look at the world. It's only also a different way for clinicians to look at uh, treating someone. And we hear so much now about treatment-resistant illnesses, particularly with mental illness, treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant anything. Well, I think something can only be called treatment-resistant when you've really tried all the treatments possible. Now, we know that this had had therapeutic value in the 60s and 70s. The fact that we haven't tried it again now, um, I think that's just an indication that we can't necessarily call anything treatment-resistant until we truly know. So let's get all scientific. You say we know it had value back in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s. Um, is that anecdotal or was there proper science done to show that this was beneficial? And what's the current status of the research to show that this is actually worth doing? Mm -hmm. um, there, there were the countless research papers um, dating back from the 60s and 70s. Some people will criticise the research me uh, methodology uh, of the time that maybe did not have the kind of uh, rigour um, that is expected now. Certainly didn't have the kind of ethics approval that was necessary <laughs> now. Well, yes. Um, but the, the, re the, the research then was definitely robust. Um, now, obviously, it, all the research that's been conducted is under very, kind of very rigorous and very um, scrutinised um, protocols. Um, and they, they, well, they're well into phase three studies now, which is kind of mass, uh, mass big numbers studies. Um, and for PTSD, the, um, the, the, the reduction um, in, in anxiety um, and symptoms of flashback, symptoms of PTSD over six months, a year, even 18 months are extremely, extremely positive. I can't remember the exact figures and the exact percentages now, um, but certainly better than anything else that conventional therapy um, has been able to achieve, even things like um, eye movement desensitization therapy mm -hmm. is one of the most, one of the more, I guess, alternative things, not, not so conventional therapies that have been proven for PTSD, um, even beyond that um, that's the kind of numbers that we're seeing but there's still the study sizes are not as not as large as as you would like um, 
and definitely we'd like to get that going here in Australia. But we need we need a few things to get us over the line. I see a lot of people in general practice who've had problems from psychedelic drugs. I see a lot of mood disorder, anxiety, and so on. Um, psychosis, um, which has been if not completely, maybe partly triggered by the use of these sorts of substances. So it scares the living daylights out of me to think that you're taking people with significant psychological illness. We're already talking about people maybe at the pointy end, treatment-resistant illness, uh, and then we're giving them some of these drugs which uh, classically we've associated with triggering psychological illness. Mm. And that, that really, to me, is a scary concept. Um, and so one of the first questions I want to know is how many times have we actually launched people into psychosis or the depths of depression by giving them medicinal um, psychedelics? The interesting thing is that... Um all, all the studies that have actually looked into uh, the rates of psychotic conversion from psychedelic drugs have essentially um, come up to the conclusion that there's no statistically significant increase in um, psychotic episodes as a result of psychedelics. Um, there's definitely a lot of anecdotal reports of people um, becoming psychotic after taking a psychedelic drug, but some would suggest that, and if you look at the numbers, that they're not necessarily that much higher than the population and that there are perhaps people who were predisposed in some way to developing psychotic illness and well, that guess was that's the trigger. My, but I guess that's my concern because sure. you must be talking about a vulnerable high-risk group who naturally have a high risk of predisposition and then you're filling them full of the things that we know might trigger their psychosis. That, that, is, that is a factor. That is a point. Um, but the, the kind of risk factors we're looking at it would be things like primary, family history of psychosis, any past history of psychosis, kind of concurrent drug use. Um, often it is other substances, um, things like potentially cannabis, definitely stimulants, um, who have the higher risk of psychotic conversion, far less so than psychedelics do. Um, when you're talking about de people with depression, people with PTSD, um, that tends not necessarily to be that much of a risk factor for a psychotic conversion than a pure psychotic illness in the past and a family history of such. Um, in addition, what people don't understand, I guess, about psychedelics is that there's been a lot bandied about um, colloquially uh, about the risks of... We all think of people who, oh, they climb a building and try and fly and jump off. And the, the, the likelihood of that happening is extremely small. Um, um, Professor David Nutt, based in the UK, and his team have uh, released one of the seminal studies on drug harms, um, harm to self and harm to others. And they came up with this list of the top 20 most dangerous drugs in the UK. Starting and with then alcohol, mm -hmm. tobacco, mm -hmm. uh, um, and then medicinal drugs, prescription medications. No, actually, from then a point it went. So it was alcohol, tobacco, nothing. It was alcohol, heroin, tobacco, um, crack cocaine. Ice, which is crystal methamphetamine, which is like the top five, but not but not the prescription drugs. Uh, not not so much the prescription drugs. No, those came in in between after that. And then number seventeen was cut, which is um, the root that the Ethiopians um, like to chew. And below that, below the chewing root, uh, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty were psilocybin, MDMA, and LSD right at the bottom of the list. I think by the time that we released the study, the, the total number of deaths in the previous five years in the UK from LSD was one, um, as opposed to uh, oh, more than a million uh, ED presentations because of alcohol um, per year in the UK, of which like 13,000 under, under the age of 18. So I want to so I want to ask misdiagnosis about this as someone in the the youth and student area. Maybe a what bunch are you of saying about us? Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe a bunch of clean living kids who drink freshly filtered water and nothing more. But I remember a student telling me uh, a few years ago uh, about the drug experiences at university and saying, everybody goes on like I just have about how dangerous all these terrible drugs are. Nobody ever talks about how much fun people are having. Mm. Um, and I, I, I was very struck by that because I thought, you're absolutely right. We bang on all the time about, well, you shouldn't do this and it's terribly dangerous and it's not for a moment that I want to give some sort of carte blanche to community drug use but I am interested and was very struck by that statement people are having so much fun and this student said to me I know people who are taking drugs on a regular basis and they're turning up to their lectures they're <coughs> doing their work they're successful they're taking part in extracurricular activities but they're having fun with drugs Tell me, Miss Steve, and your experience, I don't, don't think we want to label him particularly <laughs> well, just in case we identify anyone, but is, is, is student drug use still rife and are people having fun? Yes, uh, to all of the above, I think. Um, it's probably different in different subgroups, though. I mean, you know, I haven't noticed it at all at, um, you know, at medical, medical school where I am at the moment, which isn't because it's not there. It Which is just be... as well you say that, because you did name it earlier. So, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so go anonymous for anything else. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, which, yeah, so I, I haven't noticed it there. It, I did have friends sort of at university that were more into that kind of scene. And I think the thing that about that that I found very interesting is because they were having a lot of fun. But there was this... Uh, this, this sort of scenario that seemed to happen on Tuesdays, which was known as the Suicide Tuesdays, where having taken psychedelics all weekend at music festivals or parties or house parties, they would run out of serotonin because their body didn't synthesise it. Um, or I'm not, I'm not sure the exact mechanism of it, but I think you can't synthesise it... Uh, Fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I, would, and, I, and I wonder with these sort of statistics about um, suicide and uh, sort of harm from drug use, whether some of them are masked through these effects of something like a Suicide Tuesday where um, it, you may be presenting um, with suicidal uh, tendencies or something like this, but you don't actually have the drug in your system anymore and it presents as mental illness. There's um, that, the terrible Tuesdays, as they're known as, because they become so serotonin deplete. Mm. Um, but the interesting thing about that is, and that's often associated with MDMA, I yeah. guess, and the and the flooding of your serotonin syndrome, of your serotonin system. Um, street MDMA in this country is about the purity of street MDMA, even street cocaine in this country, is about ten to twenty percent. That is that is all, um, and which may, but people are still getting high on it, which means you've got to think think about what well, what is the rest, what is the rest of it. It's been cut with all kinds of other things. It's been cut with methadone. It's been cut with bath salts, it's been cut with cathinone-based stimulants. The street cocaine is cut with other signs for local anaesthetics to give, to give that numb feeling that people still think it's cocaine. And often it's these other substances which make people feel absolutely terrible. The thing with medical-grade MDMA, that there's this idea of a come-down in the way, is nowhere near severe as because of it's been cut with all these other substances. Now, the reason why it's been cut with all these other substances is essentially it's the war on drugs. If you look at street purity of cocaine in, uh, in Colombia, it would be about 85%. In, in LA, I think it's about 60%. And it's so much purer. It's been, not been cut with all these other stuffs, which, stuff which causes a lot of the negative effects that you're talking about. But the more we restrict it, the more we um, criminalise it, and the more we cramp, clamp down on it so much, as we have done in this country. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's all it has done is that it's pushed the, the drug market in a different direction, away from pure drugs 
pure substances, pure molecules, to being cut with all these other things, which in the end have a very um, quite you know, disastrous effect um, on, on the users. So where do we get pure MDMA, pure psilocybin for this research? And why aren't those labs being raided by <laughs> the people who break into pharmacies and so on on a nightly basis? <laughs> well, they tend to be very, very strongly guarded. So MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science, uh, they're based in San Francisco and they're probably the biggest um, organization around the world um, promoting psychedelic science, are currently trying to raise money um, to secure about 30 30 kilograms of um, medical grade MDMA. 30 kilos yeah, of I think that's, pure I think MDMA. That's the figure. Is that a 30 kilograms? Street so value of something terrifying. Something absurd. <laughs> and, and so uh, they're currently on a drive to raise about 20 to 30 million to procure this. Mm. Um, and All I have to do is sell 5% of it and then. <laughs> <laughs> And that will work. <laughs> um, but and, and so it's proving really expensive. So this event I went to two weeks ago, organised by Prism, was a fundraising dinner um, slash seminar where there was a bunch of lectures. Um, and essentially, Maps is now crowdsourcing or trying to crowdfund this initiative all around the world. And people all around the world are organising both big public and little private fundraising dinners um, to raise money for the MAPS cause. These are all sympathisers, um, people who feel that this cause should be supported. Um, and it remains to be seen if, if MAPS is successful in this venture. Um, and if so, it may filter down to our shores as well. And one of the areas which you haven't mentioned, I don't know if it's your interest, but is uh, was widely talked about in this country over the last 12 months is the use of ketamine mm. in the treatment of resistant depression. Uh, resistant depression. Yes. Something which caused a huge stir and an awful lot of people were interested because, of course, this is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. um, what's, uh, what's the current status of ketamine? Um, well, it's still... So Professor David Barton, who works out of... Um, well, he works at the Alfred Hospital, um, but he's he's gotten about two million dollars worth of funding um, from the Institute of Mental uh, Mental Health um, to start um, trials, um, probably late late this year. Um, so we're heading in that direction. Um, proper, f I think, phase two trials. That was what he'll be starting. Um, I don't know too much about where necessarily it's going uh, yet, um, but I know that trials are underway and that there's been funding that's been received for it and that's actually been pushed through kind of legally. Um, so that remains to be seen. So to think about all of this, what's the prevalence of um, the PTSD and people and refractory depression and so what in society or in Australian figures how many people are we looking at that might need these sorts of new treatments? Um, in terms of people who would need these new treatments I don't think it would be offered to necessarily everyone with PTSD we're talking more um, resistant PTSD which you're right it does come down to quite a small figure um, a small number of people but um, I think one of the populations that would be most useful is veterans for example, who we don't need, you don't need big numbers uh, of, of prevalence to justify the need um, when you're talking about people who've gone through what they have. Um, we've, we've got, uh, there are ads around Melbourne that you'll see now about um, uh, more, more soldiers dying after war than in war. And I think that in itself, the number needed to treat, as we talk about, I don't think it needs to be very high for us to justify trying something alternative. Mm.
Absolutely fascinating. Well, I hope we'll hear some more about this when we get some results from the trials, and I hope you get your $10 million for 30 kilos of MDMA. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Epi, Dr. Seuss. Misdiagnosis, thank you for coming all the way from New South Wales to talk to us on radiotherapy. It's just a few seconds before 11 o'clock, and we're going to hand you over to now to our friends at Einstein Agogo. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R, 102.7. Rrr.